Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. Our guest today is Corey Shrum, who also goes by the name K.B. Marie. She is a USA Today best-selling fiction author and poet. Corey will share her life and inspirations that led her to become a successful writer of fiction, which includes supernatural thrillers, science fiction, and mysteries. She will also tell how her career in fiction collided with the reality of the tragic death of her mother in July of 2020, which started her into an investigation to find the truth that led to her mother's death. To chronicle her quest for the truth, Corey wrote and narrated a 16-episode podcast called Who Killed My Mother? Today, she will share a little bit about that podcast as well. I'd now like to welcome Corey to our show. Welcome, Corey. Thank you, James. I'm so happy to be here. Well, we're really happy to have you on our show. I'd like to start off, Corey, by asking you, where were you born and where did you grow up? Well, I was born in Granite City, Illinois, which is a small industrial town pretty close to St. Louis. It's basically across the Mississippi River from St. Louis. I guess that would be considered central Illinois. And that's where my father's family was from. So that's why my parents settled down there after they got married. We only lived there for a little while, actually, before my father took a job in first Nashville and then Raleigh, North Carolina. So that was the first two or three years of my life. And then we ended up moving me and my mother back to Nashville when they got divorced. And I kind of moved all over the South as a child with my mom and my grandmother. They lived in Tennessee. They lived in Florida for a while. I think we were in Georgia for a little while. Then when my father re-entered the picture, I would split my time between Tennessee with my mother and Illinois with my father. So that's pretty much continued from, you know, late elementary through middle school and high school. Was your mom from Tennessee? Yes. So my mom and her family are from Nashville, Tennessee. Okay. So when you were growing up, uh, let's talk about your interest in school. Were you a bookish person? Yes, I love school very much. Because my childhood was so erratic and unstable, school was great because it's like the same thing happened every day. You know, like you show up at the same time and then you went to these classes in this row and, you know, you had a particular person with you all day, like your teacher. It was quite the contrast to the sort of home environment that I was experiencing. So I ended up really loving school for I know this sounds nerdish for its structure. <laughs> like, what child? It's like, I love the structure. But I think I just felt very safe there because it was a very stable environment. So I did enjoy being at school, learning books. All of that was a really great escape for me, for sure. So were there subjects in school that were of a particular fascination to you? Yes. Well, so I always loved reading. Of course, I loved the library time. So they would have like, let's take the class down to the library and then you'd pick out your books. That was always fun. I also really liked spelling, which I think is, (laughs) it is not, I don't think it's a thing anymore, but it was once upon a time. And then I loved music class. They get all the little kids together. They give you your, do you remember the little recorders that you would have to play? Plastic recorders. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you get your little recorder. So I did. I loved music. I loved art. I loved books, literature. I liked math, but I wasn't any good at it. I don't know what happened there. What types of books did you like? Well, I remember one of my very first memories is picture books with animals in them, things with animals. Like I would carry them around and I would show all the different animals to people. And I remember once my father was like pointing at the book and he was like oh look it's a squid and I remember I couldn't have been more than like three years old and I was like it is not a squid it's like an octopus has a round head and a squid has a pointy one like (laughs) I was that child (laughs) so I um so yeah three years old and I'm correcting people's assumptions about the animals that they see in my books so I did love animal books early on and I also loved kind of adventure books and when I got older my taste got a little bit darker I liked a lot of stuff with vampires and stuff in it I was probably reading things far older than what I should have been reading but no one stopped you know the librarian is not like give me that book why do you have that? 
like, you know, you just walk out with it. And so I was reading above my grade level, some Anne Rice and like some of these vampire stories. And then I also really loved the choose your own adventure. You could read part of the story and then it was make a choice. And if you made one choice, you turn to page 76. And if you made another choice, you turn to page 25. And I actually ended up writing three of those. Well, I've written, I've published two of them. There's a third one coming as an adult because I I enjoyed them so much as a kid kind of deciding where the story was going to go. And otherwise, oh, Goosebumps books, of course. Goosebumps were another fun one. All the like teen, preteen horror stuff that's like scary, but not really. (laughs) I always thought that was a good fun too. You know, a deep, dark secret. I'm a big scary movie fan. Oh, yeah. Okay. Much to my wife's horror. I am actually (laughs) responsible for causing all three of my daughters to also like scary movies. So four of us, my three daughters and I usually get together at least a couple times a year to watch something scary. Not usually too scary. Like we like Hocus Pocus. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's not, that's not really that scary. (laughs) No, hardly. Or I was a big fan of the old Boris Karloff movies. Kelly will say to me, why do you want to be scared? I, so I said, people like to get scared. It's as exciting. As it's yeah. It was like where the good good guys win in the end, but I like to get scared. Yes, exactly. Yeah, well, that's all good fun as long as someone survives. Yes. Now, as you got older into high school, did you start thinking about college and what you wanted to do in college? I did. Well, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do in college, full disclosure, but I was thinking about going away to school mostly because, again, I really craved that sort of stability. And at that point, I was pretty addicted to the, I don't want to say the academic setting or whatever, but it's just like you show up and someone expects something of you and you do it and they say, good job. And it's just like, there's something very, I don't know, stable and reassuring about that. (laughs) Because I just, I enjoyed that a lot, that sort of affirming I guess, environment, if you, you know, when you have good teachers, they, things, and also sort of, I wouldn't say I'm necessarily competitive, but you know, like I liked doing things well and like being told like, oh, you're doing this well, which is not necessarily any feedback I was getting at home. All the positive affirmations that maybe children were getting in other places, I was only getting it in educational environments. So it really felt important for me to follow that path as long as I humanly could. Yeah. So when you got to college, um, what kind of classes sort of tickled your fancy? Oh, my gosh. I took everything. Theater, science, pre-med, microbiology, psychology, writing. Like I just I have so many interests. I'm a very curious person and I find most things to be fascinating. But yeah, I studied a lot of different things and ended up changing my major, gosh, four or five times. I think I was about to change it like the fifth time. And my advisor was like, listen, you just need to go to the career placement center and take this test that will tell you what you enjoy. And I was like, oh, okay, okay, so I'll do that. And at the end of the test, they were like, you should be an English major. And I'm like, oh, okay, I guess I'll do that. I already discovered that I liked writing. So I had already pretty much completed a creative writing minor at this point. I finally settled on English as a major and creative writing as a minor and completed that degree. Did you ever think that this was more than just a place where you felt comfortable and structured and you were doing what you loved? Did you ever think of it as an occupation that you were going to go into the rest of your life, perhaps? Well, I was hoping. (laughs) I was hoping there was a job at the end because I have a... um, I have a crushing fear of poverty. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to live under a bridge or, or be, and, and I was talking to someone else. I was talking about my fears around not having enough money, which by the way, are in no way unique. I don't know many people who aren't worried about that, but this friend said to me, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Knowing what I know about your family and your background, because when no one had enough money, bad things happened. So like, for example, when my mother didn't have enough money, you know, she had to make bad choices. And so I can see where I like, oh, there has to be, there has to be enough of a buffer or something's going to happen. And so, yeah, I was hoping that it would end in a job, (laughs) but I didn't know exactly what that would look like. I just know that I didn't want to be in a difficult position where I was always struggling. And I had no interest in this, this vision of the writer who was like the starving artist, like, it wasn't my jam. I wasn't going to do that. <laughs> it was not going to be an option. I would teach or something else if I had to do it. But I, yeah, I wasn't going to go down that path for sure. 
you wanted to see a regular paycheck that was coming I in did. and that it was sustainable lifestyle and right. comfortable and not in a condition where you're going to starve. Yes. <laughs> yes. Right? I don't know where I got the living under a bridge vision, but that's where I imagined like I would be under a bridge. I would have no house. These are my fears. So you graduated, you have a bachelor's and a master's degree, right? I have two master's degrees because it was fun the first time. <laughs> <laughs> so the two master's degrees happen because in writing, there's sort of two paths that you can take. So there's an MFA, which is what most people know of of writers, which is a terminal degree. There's also MFAs for painters, things like that. So it's considered what you would call a studio degree, which means that you're learning your craft or you're focusing on becoming good at that artistic thing that you're doing. That's what the master of fine arts is, right? But at the same time, there was this sort of emergence of a PhD in creative writing. They might be more popular now, but they were not widely publicized when I was at the juncture where I had to decide if I wanted to do one or the other. So I ended up getting the MA first, the Master of Arts first, and then was trying to decide if I wanted to do the MFA or the PhD. So that's kind of how they ended up being layered on each other because I wasn't sure what direction I was going to go with. Mm -hmm. um, but I ended up going with the MFA because it focused more on the actual craft of writing, the actual craft of storytelling, and less on the theoretics behind literature. So your writing is mostly in the area of, would you say, supernatural thrillers, science fiction, mystery, poetry? If you could answer that question for me, that would be great because I'm actually not sure. It's been the bane of like my marketing existence. It is so hard for me to figure out where on the shelves my work sits. The MFA was in poetry. So I did write a lot of poetry when I was in school. It was a three-year program. And then I had published poetry while I was in school. And then now I have two collections out. So there is quite a bit of poetry in circulation. So in writing school, you know, they're not really into genre fiction. I couldn't bring a vampire story in there, for example, unless it was like a vampire metaphor for the patriarchy or something. I don't know, like it would have to be, like it had to be something else. And so I was like, well, I'll just learn how to write poetry because poets are really good with language. Like they're really good with the sound of words, kind of the rhythm, the musicality. And I was like, well, if I could master that, I can apply that to anything. And I think that would be great. And so I did study poetry, but on the fiction side, next month, I have my 18th novel coming out. So it's spread across several different series and they are a lot of different genres. I would say that in general, my fiction is cross genre. So for example, the city series, which is the one I'm releasing next month, which will close a trilogy. It's set 500 years in the future. And it's in a post-climate change world. And in a lot of ways, it is very much science fiction, right? So there's a lot of world building around what the world looks like then. So it's very much science fiction, but also at the heart of that is like, it's a detective series. Like the main character is a detective and she's solving these crimes. So it's not just science fiction, you know, it's, it's detective fiction. And then the same thing with the shadows in the water, like it could be considered a thriller because she's hunting mafia, she's killing them. But then she also has the supernatural ability of slipping through shadows. So is it a supernatural thriller or is it a detective? Like, I don't know. I just tend to do whatever the story asks of me, regardless of genre. And that's been terrible from a marketing perspective, but in a creative sense, it's really liberating. It's really freeing to do whatever you feel that the story needs in order to be a really good story, there's this, this pressure to know how to sell your work. And so because I opened my own publishing company, I don't have to do that. You know, I could just, I can write the book, whatever book I want and publish it myself. If I was following the traditional path, that would be a lot harder. Shadows would have to have been rewritten to be just a thriller or the science fiction would have to be distilled down to be much more theoretical, less about Grace's journey with her grief. You know what I mean? Like it would have to, these shifts would have to be made for marketing reasons. And I think that's terrible for creativity. Right? Yeah. I mean, you you want to be creative because you are creative. You've got a yes. wonderful imagination. Uh, by the way, you're very successful. You have made the USA Today bestselling author list. Yes. Thank you. Congratulations on that. And you've won some other awards, haven't you? Yes, but nothing, nothing like as large as that but probably hitting a bestseller list is the most significant of those. Oh, that's tremendous. So let's talk about your imagination a little bit. Okay. So Careful, James. <laughs> first of all, 
it seems limitless, your imagination. <laughs> I would say it's got limits, but it probably is much more expansive than, than most people. You're, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, someone to be able to dig down and create these situations and plots, and there has to be a lot of, I guess, a broad knowledge of a lot of different topics to create fictional characters and times and places and technology and yeah. all sorts of things that aren't, and other things that aren't found by reality, even, yes. you know, yes. it takes a lot. You know, my wife, Kelly, asks me to picture what a patio set would look like, say, sitting on our <laughs> deck, and I can't imagine what it would look like. Right. Whereas I'm like, okay, I'm, what color is it? Like, I, I'm already there. <laughs> right, yeah, you can talk to Kelly, believe me. I thought I had an imagination, but what I find out is that I just enjoy plugging into other people's imaginations and hearing it. I think as a historian, a person who loves history, I like going to places where something happened and I picture it. Right. So that's your imagination at work if you're doing that, for sure. It's not like you don't have one. It it works in those conditions, but not with regard to what a patio set or what a color looks like on a house or, or whatever. I don't have that. And certainly to the extent that you have created all these different books and poems and things like that. It's something I'm, I think is terrific. But I want to ask, what are some of the circumstances or things in your life that maybe impacted you to the point where it made you use your imagination? Is there anything in your life that sort of prompted you to use your imagination more? Oh, absolutely. Well, first and foremost, is probably just because my living situation as a child was so difficult. I guess I needed something to kind of buffer myself from those experiences, first and foremost, but also I needed to be able to imagine a better situation. I think a lot of people who are in situations like that, maybe they start to feel hopeless because they can't imagine being out of the situation, right? They feel so completely stuck where they are. They can't imagine that they have any agency or ability to move past where they are. And so shifting that kind of heavy situation, those, those difficulties, begins with being able to see yourself somewhere else, right? Being able to see something better, mm-hmm. being able to imagine yourself in a life where you are receiving the things that you aren't currently getting that you need. So for example, like, what does that mean? So when I was a child and I felt very neglected or lonely or unloved or unsafe, you know, like I could imagine somewhere where I felt really safe, or I could imagine somewhere where I felt really loved and welcomed, or I could imagine being surrounded by people who wanted to be around me so I wouldn't be as lonely. So it's like, it it was definitely a coping mechanism that came from my circumstances that I relied on quite a bit till I was able to actually manifest those things in the real world. And thankfully I have them now, which is probably the only reason why I can talk about it and not just like sob into the microphone. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I, you know, and back then that was definitely not something that I had and it wasn't something that I could see as an immediate possibility. And so I had no choice but to imagine it. It was either this or just be, be so overwhelmed with hopelessness and sadness. And I guess... I didn't have that in me, the the part that was like, let me just give up or whatever. So it was like, okay, I can't give up, but I also can't get out of this. So what can I do? And it seems like the answer was imagination. Like, well, well, let's just picture ourselves somewhere else until we can get there. And that started at a very early age. But I've also read some things about how reading develops your imagination. And I've always been a reader. I've always loved books. Even before I really understood how dire my childhood experiences were, I was already in love with books. So I wonder if that compulsion to reach for imagination in these difficult situations was because I had already developed, you know, it was already something that was present that had been nurtured in the first few years of my life. It wasn't like I discovered reading as an adult or something, you know, like, and then, so like the muscle might've already been activated to some extent. And so I was able to touch on that more and more as I needed it more and more. It sounded like your passion, your gift, and the situation that you sort of grew up in sort of converged to work together. Yeah. To sort of elevate you or at least lead you through that path to where you are today and what you're doing today. 
Corey, would you be okay with sharing just a little bit about your family dynamics or the environment you grew up in? Can you share something about that? Oh, absolutely. So as I said, I was born in Illinois. I had a two-parent home up until I was about four. And then everything sort of fell apart. And so what happened was very dramatically one evening, me, my mom, my dad were in the living room. And then the police burst in and they throw my father on the floor and they arrest him and they drag him away. I didn't understand what was happening because I was only four years old. I was probably about six months or so from my fifth birthday. And then right after that, like two weeks after he was gone, my my best friend in the world at the time, which was this black lab named Benny Buddy, he was taken away because we couldn't take him with us. The dog gets loaded in the back and he's like driven away to the pound and I'm in the street screaming. And so so it was like everything was semi-normal, at least to my little four-year-old brain. You know, here's mom, here's dad, everything is okay. And then everything was suddenly not okay. We were living in North Carolina at the time and we moved back to Nashville where my mother's parents lived. And then suddenly, you know, my mom started getting really unwell. I'll, I'll clarify why later, but right now, I just, I didn't understand at the time. She seemed like a stable, happy mom. And then now suddenly, like, she's drinking too much and she's disappearing. And it's, it's not clear. What about, like, is she upset that my dad went to jail? You know, like, I just don't understand the situation. My grandmother tried to step in and do a lot of the kind of stable caretaking stuff there, but... That house was also not necessarily like the best environment ever. I mean, my grandparents didn't fight and there wasn't a lot of violence or anything at the time, but my mom was kind of slowly devolving into madness and I didn't understand why. And then when my dad got out of prison, there was this kind of, I don't want to say war between them, but it was definitely like he was trying to make sure I knew how terrible she was. And then also kind of ejecting all of his problems onto me. So, I mean, he was someone who had gone to prison, lost everything, essentially, was released from prison, and now he's trying to rebuild his life. So he comes out with this kind of raging um, ambition and thirst to prove that he's not who people think he is, you know. And so he's kind of consumed by his work, and he's got a lot of sort of insecure issues and all of that's kind of being projected on me. But at the time, I just want to be glad that he's back, you know, because I'm like, just love me. And he's just like, I don't have time. You know, like he doesn't have time for that sort of stuff in a way. But the reality is that he had a nine-year-old child who desperately needed someone to be stable, loving, affectionate, reassuring, because I had just to have this really unstable, chaotic years without him. And I still didn't understand what was going on and what was happening with people and my mom would disappear and I don't know where'd she go and like oh she's in jail like why did she go to jail you know like there was just really poor communication <laughs> skills all around so and I, I get that like you know my grandmother was trying to protect me like so people just wouldn't tell me what was going on but I feel like people should have just sat down and like told me what was happening but they didn't and so there was a lot of confusion and my father kind of blames my mother later I discover for him being convicted of his crime so I realize where the anger and the animosity is coming from, but I just don't think he realizes that he's kind of ejecting it onto me, you know, like that he would say things to me like, you know, like you're just like her or, you know, you need to get your emotions under control or you're going to be just like her, you know, like he would make me afraid of her illness. And I'm just like, what, what do you mean? You know, and it's also because I just wanted him to be so right. You know, I was in a position just to believe anything he was saying because I was so desperate for a good, stable parent. It was a bad mix. I was so desperate and he was so wanted to be so right. It was, it was not a good, it was not a good dynamic, a good no. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> so it was like, uh, Basically, how it all shook out was that my father was very good at providing for my basic needs. So like, I was never worried about not being fed or picked up from school on time or like, you know, basic functional things that you do as a parent as far as caregiving. He was very capable in that sense, but he was completely incapable when it came to things like emotional well-being or mental health or any of these like psychological needs, things like that. He did not understand that. And I understand where that comes from, from his family, because he was also severely abused as a child. His father remarried a woman that essentially, you know, beat them, starved them, locked them in closets and stuff from his early age. So, you know, he clearly has a, an emotional disconnect. 
and it prevents him from having emotional connections, meaningful emotional connections to other people. And so I was really feeling that lack. But on my mother's side, she was really good at connecting emotionally. Like she never left any doubt in my mind that I was loved, that I was cherished, that I was wanted, that she would often say, you know, you're the best thing, the only good thing I ever did. Like she was very affirming verbally and affectionately, but she just had so much of her own demons to contend with that she herself was very unstable. She was later diagnosed with manic depression, which is now called bipolar. Even since then, they've talked about from the records that I got, basically that she might've also had borderline personality disorder, not bipolar disorder, because it's just the shifts that she would experience would be so sudden. Like she would be okay one moment and literally the next moment be very not okay. So one of the examples I had used in the podcast was like driving down the road, you know, Shay's driving the car, which was her girlfriend at the time. And then we're laughing. And then the next second, like my, my mother's assaulting her, you know, and like, she's trying to get the car to the side of the road and you don't really understand the shift. Like what happened there? What triggered that? It definitely aggravated like anxiety in me. Like, was it, was everything okay? Like I never knew if everything was like, okay. But at the same time, I still felt freer with her than I did with my father because like being around him was like you had to walk on eggshells and everything had to be just right. And so I did feel freer with her, even though the freedom kind of came from a place of neglect. <laughs> so it's like, you know, so it was it was an interesting line to walk. But yeah, so that was the dynamic of him hating her, saying terrible things about her, kind of putting that off on me, and then him dealing with his own lack of emotional connection stuff, and then her contending with her own demons, which I would later learn what that was about very recently, but almost my entire adult life, I didn't know what the source of her, her mental illness was. I just knew that she was very mentally ill. I kind of went back and forth between them, mitigating different kinds of damage, I guess. Corey, that must have been such a stress on a, on a young girl. That must have been just a really difficult thing to deal with. You mentioned before that your imagination developed partly because of the circumstances you were in as a child. Did your imagination, along with reading, writing, and school, continue to give you comfort? Absolutely. So, like I said, the school was the very stable part, right? So it was, no matter what was going on in life, for eight hours a day at least, there would be a meal, and I would be doing this, and that you'd move from class to class. And so I definitely clung to the stability and the security of that. And then as far as the books and the imagination, absolutely, you can escape inside of a story. If your life is really hard and really challenging and everything around you is falling apart or you're dealing with a lot of feelings of fear or uncertainty, you can go be somewhere else for however long that book lasts. And I would usually get like, you know, 10 books at a time from the library. So I could be gone for a long time and then come back and be like, well, what's happening? <laughs> so yeah, I was definitely using it as a form of escapism. And at the same time, I was relying on my imagination to decide where I was going to go. I was determined to not be at the mercy of these people my whole life. <laughs> like I was like, I was going to leave at some point. So trying to imagine what that might look like. What did I want? What did I want my home to look like, you know, in five, 10 years? What did I want my friend circle to look like? So there was some imagination, absolutely, that helped me create that bridge between my present and my future for mm -hmm. sure now you're a successful author thank you what else does your life look like right now well i have a lovely marriage to kim we've been together since 2010 so we seem to like each other <laughs> and she is pretty much the antithesis of my parents which is probably great like we probably would not have a wonderful marriage if she wasn't but she is very stable there's no craziness in her <laughs> and then I'm running my publishing business so I opened Timberlane Press in 2018 17 something like that I was able to do that because when I was in graduate school I worked for a couple of presses so so I was very intimate with the bookmaking process from there and so Essentially, what happened was with the publishing journey was I started on the traditional path. I got a fancy New York agent. I won't name her because we're not together anymore, but she's a desirable agent. And I made my 
pitched to her and she was in love with the book. It was Dying for a Living I, that I ended up publishing myself later, but she accepted it and she wanted to shop it around. And we got good feedback when she was submitting it to editors. They were very interested in the story, but the same problem we touched on earlier, which is that they didn't know where to put it on the shelf because it's not like anything else. And they kind of need, I don't want to say they don't support creativity. You know, it sounds harsh, but I think that their jobs is to think about it as a business, right? And they're like, where are we going to sell this? And like, what shelf? And if we can tell people it's like this, you know, it's easier to do. And they just, you cannot do that with that book. There is no other book that is like that, that is like dying for a living. And so she was like, well, why don't you try writing something else? You know, I still want to work with you. I think your writing's great. But then I wrote another book and it was also the same problem. And so I know how to run a press. Like, I like maybe I should just run a press if this is, what it looks like it's like um, if I have to make a choice between writing the kind of stories I want to write or being published it's like well I guess I'm gonna run a press and so I opened Timberlane Press as an LLC and I started publishing my stuff under that and so now it's going you know really well but in the beginning I had no idea so I kept my teaching job I had already been teaching at the time I was teaching writing creative writing to college students that is the job that I got when I got out of school ah <laughs> yeah you weren't gonna starve were you I wasn't gonna starve so I started teaching writing to college students and I did that for probably 10 years while I was writing and publishing on the side and then it reached a point where I could you know, pay the bills with just the writing. And so I stopped teaching and just committed myself fully to the business. And when I say the business, I mean Timberlane Press. So basically anything I produce through that imprint, be it books, audiobooks, you know, the podcast, whatever it is that, that I do for that. One of the other things I do know about you, I don't remember where I read it. It might have been on your web page, but that you drink copious cups of tea. I do. I'm a big tea drinker. Yes. <laughs> the kettle's always on. The kettle's always on. Yeah. I turned it on first thing every morning. <laughs> oh, I love that. My mom was uh, English. Oh, okay. And, yeah. And as a little kid, we always were brought up on tea, but even my girls would say today that some of the most comforting words my mother would ever say would be, I put the kettle on. Aww, yeah, it is. There's something very ritualistic about it. It's very soothing. Corey, things seem to be going pretty well right now. As you got to the point where you are now, what would you say were some of the more encouraging experiences along that path and maybe a couple of the more discouraging things that happened that may have upended you had you taken another approach? Right. Well, the most encouraging was definitely my time during the MFA my experience was very positive and I was surrounded by people who read my work, who appreciated my work. They wanted to help me be a better writer. And so I felt very supported during those three years. I can't recall a time before that, that people had taken my stuff so serious. I mean, that's not true. I did have a couple of mentors during the MA as well. Some professors from the first program, like apart from that, I had never been so encouraged and supported. People always wanted to see my pages or to give me feedback or to you know, tell me, oh, maybe you should read this. Like this person was doing something really interesting. And I think maybe that's what you're trying to do. So kind of check out what she's done and see if that works. And so it was just a very nurturing environment for me. And I just had not experienced that level of support before that, that support and interest in what I was doing, right? Like it was such a novel experience to have people who were so interested in what I was interested in doing and like, how can I help you achieve that? And so it was just, it was a phenomenal experience, the level of support. It was transformational for me. It was really helpful in my own personal healing journey. And then honestly, the most discouraging was this past year when my mom died. That was like the first time I had felt really shaken since I had started this journey I could think of one other time before the MFA as well. But when I came out of my environment, I had a series of relationships that were toxic, not surprising. I came from a terrible home environment. So of course my dating choices were horrible. <laughs> my, the compass was not good. <laughs> was not good. Oh. And so I had a few terrible relationships, but at some point I had realized this isn't working. Like this is just, this is just as terrible. Like I don't want to do this either. And so I had put myself in therapy and I was trying to like sort through my mess, you know, like my first a real attempt at healing, right? But I was pretty discouraged in the beginning because it just felt like there was so much to get through. I was really discouraged and I 
didn't feel like I was going to make any progress at all in in this thing because it was like even if I could get through one thing then there's another thing and this was also the time where I had developed an eating disorder for a while my life had felt so out of control that it was like if I could eat and purge what I want like it was like some kind of weird control in my life and where I had no other control and so I was doing that for about a year I haven't done it since which is great but you know at the time it was just like it's a really good indicator of how out of control I felt and overwhelmed I felt trying to just sit with all these feelings and not do the toxic things I had been doing like to unlearn my patterns but when you stop doing it like you're just in it you know you're just sitting in it and you just feel like you're being eaten alive you know <laughs> with all of your feelings and your your leftover stuff. It was really hard, but I had a really great therapist. He was really patient with me and he was just so kind and affirming. And, and I remember one day in therapy, he was just like, I want you to say that what happened to you was terrible. He used a different word, but I won't say it on your podcast, but he was like, it was terrible. And I resisted. And he was like, this is what I'm talking about. And he's like, we can't get anywhere unless you acknowledge that what happened to you was really bad. Yeah. I mean, what he's saying is you have to address reality. It was bad. Yes, exactly. He's like, you need to address reality that, you know, you have been hit from every side for a really long time. And unless you can acknowledge this, you know, it will be really hard for us to start moving past it. And, and, but he stayed, you know, he stuck with me, even though until it, it took me a minute to get there, <laughs> to get to where I could do that. So that was a pretty discouraging time. And then just because of the level of overwhelm I was experiencing when I first decided to confront basically I just stopped running from my situation and looked at what had happened and what was happening and being like okay like you know you dig your heels and you're like all right I'm gonna face this I didn't like anything that I was saying I didn't like anything that had happened I didn't like any of the feelings I was having it was not fun and so it, it was very difficult time and then again when my mother died in July because it brought up a lot of that and also it kind of like highlighted the ways that I had been kept in the dark about my family and the things that had happened and then also because I was so overwhelmed with what had happened to her I was just trying to process the information of like her death and how she died that my business became completely neglected and so sales went down attention went down and because I couldn't do two things at once. And I was really hard on myself about that, surprisingly hard. So all those old patterns came up of like the things that I had dealt with before had kind of resurfaced to some, it was definitely not as strong as it had been in the past, but some of it I saw was sneaking back in this tendency to minimize, to try to push through when really what you need is rest. Like you need to stop and, and process and grieve and accept and not just like ram yourself through <laughs> to the next thing and just go through. Like, no, that is, that is not the appropriate response to these situations. But it's very discouraging because I was like, oh gosh, why is this happening? Fortunately, I've come out the other side of that and I'm able to see those patterns even more clearly. So this bump was not as bad as the one in the past. I have even more insight. I think self-care, it's not selfish. It's not, I can't do this because it's selfish. It, it is so important, not only for you as a person, but for those mm -hmm. around you, the people you care about, that you take good care of yourself. And it sounds like you're intentional about it because it helps you with your mind, your work, yeah. uh, just your general sense of well-being. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You mentioned your mother passed away in 2020. Now, I know that you have a podcast mm -hmm. called Who Killed My Mother? Yes. And when I first found out about it, I found out you were a supernatural thriller, science fiction mystery writer. I thought to myself, is this a real story or is this a really interesting fiction from you? I'm a fiction writer. <laughs> fiction writer, right? Yeah. Can you tell us about, I don't want to give away the podcast because I listened to it and it is a riveting podcast. It's a very emotional podcast and it's well told from your heart, which makes the impact of it like three times over. Can you tell us just a snippet of what it's about, and why you chose to do a podcast about it. Sure. 
So starting with your first question of was it fiction or something, that was the thing I asked myself. I was like, is this really happening? Like there was definitely a moment of surrealness for me because I'm so used to crafting certain kind of narratives that here was something unfolding in real life. And my brain was like, wait, what? Like it just could not accept it at first that this was a thing, that this was actually happening. But I did write a podcast called Who Killed My Mother? And it was about my mother's death. I got two phone calls on July 4th, 2020. First phone call from my uncle saying that is who my mother lived with at the time. She'd lived with him for the last few years of her life, him and my grandmother. But my grandmother had just passed in March of 2020. So she had been dead for a few months at this point. And I got a call and he said, you know, I went into her bedroom and I found her dead. I think it was an overdose. You know, knowing what I knew about her history, that in and of itself wouldn't be totally shocking that maybe she would take something but I was still very confused because she had been clean for a long time like she she hadn't been on anything for years and so I was confused as to why even just why he thought it was an overdose so I was asking him about that I was like we what do you mean like what did she get a hold of like did you did you see something and he was like I don't know maybe she broke into my safe and he has been a long-term heroin user himself and so he didn't say I think she took my heroin to me because I think he would have known immediately. I was like, she did not. (laughs) That did not happen because she had never used heroin in her life. Her drug of choice was always pills, right? So if she could take a pain pill to forget about her terrible life for a day, I escaped into books. She would take a pain pill and numb out, right? That was her coping mechanism. I was just so confused by the situation. And then several hours later, so he had called me and it was 9 a.m. that morning. And then at 2 p.m. the same day, I got a call from a detective asking me to tell him about the history that I know between my uncle and my mother, because it is a violent one. And immediately, as soon as he said that, I was like, oh, God, like he lied and something's happened. So I am trying to stutter my way through this conversation. I'm like, oh, gosh, you know, well, he, you know, he strangled her last year and and he was like, yeah, I know we're going to arrest him today on that warrant. I'm thinking, well, like, if she's dead because of that, like, why didn't you enforce that warrant earlier? But and then I was like, well, and then he also hit her in the head with a glass ashtray in 2006. I almost killed her then. You know, I had to go to the large hospital in Nashville to kind of claim her, I guess, because she couldn't speak. Like, she didn't know who she was and they needed someone to verify who she was. And she had a drip in her head that was literally siphoning off the blood that was going to kill her if they hadn't stopped the hemorrhage. And so I knew that they had a violent history. And I thought that this detective was telling me that he had beaten her to death. Basically, the detective was like, well, I do think that he has done something to her. I just don't know that I can prove it. And what he was saying is that the drug situation might have been staged. You know, it just wasn't clear why she was found this way and kind of how her body was found was very suspicious. His exact words were the condition of her body, which again, at first I thought this meant that she had been like beaten to death and she was in a horrible state or something. And he was basically just saying that she was found strangely, like she was on the floor and she had clothes piled on her legs and it just didn't make any sense, like why her body looked like that. And when they would ask what happened, he just kept telling different versions of the story. And so as you can imagine, at the end of that phone call, I was not okay. Oh, I was like, oh my God, like I just spiraled and what has happened, you know, and now he's in jail. So I can't even call him up and like yell at him and be like, you, you tell me the truth right now, like, cause he's gone, he's in jail. And so it propelled for me this journey of finding out what had happened. And then also what's going to happen. Is there going to be a trial? Are they going to prosecute him? Do I need to testify? You know, like what's going to happen to this house that they lived in? You know, like, does this need to go to probate? It was a very hard time. (laughs) It was like, oh my gosh. Yeah, so I decided to tell the story, that story of everything that happened as a podcast because it was such a personal story. I had never told a story so personal before. I mean, even now, like the conversation we're having now is pretty personal and I have friends and things and it's like, they know like Corey had a bad child or whatever, like, but I had never like gone into detail of what that meant, you know, like describe for them, like the things that had happened. And like you said, in the podcast, I do it from a very open and honest, emotional place. Like I let you be right down in it with me, with what I'm feeling when things are happening. And so I couldn't pretend 
that I hadn't been hurt. You know, like it, there was no way to tell the story and hide the fact that I had been clearly and completely heartbroken in my relationship with my mother in particular, but like my parents and things like that. There was nothing to hide behind. And so I felt that if I was going to tell a story like that, it should be done in my own voice. And I don't know if that was an instinctual choice or if it just seemed natural, but it was like, if I'm going to tell you what happened to me, like I'm going to actually physically tell you what happened to me. So I did write it out when people talk, like they're not as, even like the conversation I'm having with you right now, like it's not as fluid as you would like when you write a story. So I did write out each episode, you know, so it does flow like a story, but I read it with my own voice and I felt like that was just so important considering the content and like how much it meant to me and just how much I felt like I was putting on the table. I was like, well, well, gosh, this is, this is a big reveal. <laughs> like, I'm just really inviting you in here. I listened to it. I thought, well, I'm going to be speaking with Corey and doing a podcast interview with her. And I want to make sure I listen to the entire podcast. I was riveted. The way you told it was from the heart and you do let people into your thoughts, your heart, your past, and some of the struggles that you had, which were, I mean, I, I honestly couldn't believe it after a while, um, what you had been through. And, and you hadn't even told me about the dog being taken away. And, <laughs> I know, it was almost, it was almost too sad. To that would have thrown me right over the edge. That would have been it. I mean, just, I mean, even now, my heart breaks to think of you four years old and having your house split up and your dog being taken away. Yeah. You know, four-year-olds are, oh man, they want stability. Children want stability. They want routine. They want something they can count on. But did doing the podcast and it's 16 episodes, how did that help you sort of get back on track? Did it hurt? Did it bring up some bad feelings? What was the overall result of doing the podcast? Surprisingly, the overall result was this deep, almost transformational healing, which I did not at all expect to happen when I went into it. I thought I would just tell the story to kind of give myself closure because I was expecting that I was not going to get closure in the real world because the circumstances of her death, the evidence is pretty thin. If you listen to the podcast, I make the argument of why I absolutely believe he's responsible for her death, my uncle, but he has for people who haven't listened, you will find out he has already charges on his record, times when he has come up before a judge for different things, domestic violence or drugs or drinking or driving or stealing or personating officer. Like he has the most incredible rap sheet, but he has not seen any real jail time. Like, I mean, he's gone in here and there, but he's never gone to prison. He's never, he's never done anything remotely time that I feel is justice, you know, so I just had no faith going in that he was actually going to end up before a judge. And there, my confidence was so low that I was also doing this for myself because I was like, I have to find a way to give myself closure here or I'll, I'll make myself crazy about what has or hasn't happened. So I did it to also sort of sort the details. Like, as you said, you, you listen to the podcast. I think I do a pretty good job of sorting through the evidence and laying out what we do know and what I think it means. That was definitely for me, right? Like to try to make sense of the situation. Because again, there was so much confusion about what had happened because when your sole witness to a crime is possibly the murderer, but also just a compulsive liar, like, what do you do with this? There's so much confusion and that doesn't work well for me. I need to understand things. But also the healing came because I started asking questions that I had never asked before. I really dug down into my family's history, what had happened. And so there are a few people who were still alive that knew my mother. So I started asking them things. I'm like, well, what about this? You know, what about this? And I was just kind of really insistent on trying to piece together a narrative of her life. And that's when I discovered the things about her that it just brought her life into focus. It was like I had fragments of a story my whole life and then suddenly someone like gave me the book and I'm just like oh my gosh like could this have been given to me sooner <laughs> like you guys I guess it would have made so much more sense and and I, I don't mind sharing this detail with listeners but basically I uncovered that my mother had been severely sexually abused by her father for many years terrible be right and that was the source of her mental illness but because no one had talked about it it just seemed like she had developed 
She had developed seizures and mental illness and tried to kill herself around the age of 12, you know, and that it just spontaneously happened. But after I started asking questions, I was like, oh, okay, this was actually the detonation event that blew this family apart. Now I understand why my mother struggled with addiction and alcohol, why she had PTSD, why she had so many difficulties in having loving relationships. This is what caused that. It wasn't just something that spontaneously happened, which is how they would tell it. So it was, it was very enlightening to learn these things about her and to put her life in such a complete context that I didn't have access to before. From that, there was so much understanding and forgiveness and realizing that it was never about me. Like it wasn't because she didn't want to be my mom or, or like she, you know, was choosing other things instead of me or, or any of the ways I might have framed the disappointment in the past. None of that was true. It was just that she was completely consumed by this horrible thing that had happened to her. And then she received no support for it for the rest of her life. Like no one really helped her work through that or do to process that. That's why she stayed sick and why she got so sick when we had to move back to their house. You know, like I said, that she seemed pretty stable when I was a young child. Like I don't have any memories of her being whatever. But as soon as we were back at my grandmother's, like it suddenly was like she was losing her mind. And well, that makes sense. If that's the house you grew up in where you were being raped for at least five years or something as a child. And now your five-year-old daughter sleeping in the same bedroom where it happened to you. Of course, she slowly lost her mind. So oh, it was just things like yeah. that. So it's like things just kept coming across like that. Like, of course, of course, of course. Whereas before, I just had no answers and no understanding of what had happened. You mentioned how you felt that despite your mother's issues that she had, sometimes she would whether she would disappear or whether she got violent with somebody, but you always felt that she loved you and cared about you. Yes. Did this podcast and sort of digging down deep into your own memories and doing some more research on your own, did you find that that made you feel even closer to your mom? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I could really see where she had to work were were the moments where I thought maybe it was she was just being a normal person or whatever but it's like maybe at that moment she really had to kind of open herself and be vulnerable and be like you know I love you so for example when I told her I wanted to go live with my dad for a summer or something so he came out of prison and I was really excited you know I was like oh I'm gonna see my dad again and I was like I want to go live with him how hard must that have been for her because their relationship wasn't great so now here's the one thing that she loves is like wants to run off. So I'm sure that even things like that, she, but she was never like, oh God, don't go see him, which is absolutely what my father would have said, by the way. But my mother was like, if that's what will make you happy, you know, like, okay, you know, like, let's pack your stuff. Like she was so, she was always considerate when she could be, when she wasn't like in a spiral, you know, of her, of her own stuff. Like she was considered about my own happiness and my own feelings and like the she didn't have a lot of money she worked in a factory she ended up not completing school because a lot of like a lot of girls that get sexually abused their their education begins to really suffer and instead of someone showing up and figuring out why she wasn't in school anymore like she just never went back and so she didn't finish I think the eighth grade or something like that and so her occupational opportunities were pretty limited when she was an adult I remember one day that I was just so desperate for this new Anne Rice book. It wasn't in the library yet because it was too new. And it's like, well, I just wanted it so bad. But it was like a $25 hardback. And $25 for her would have been like, it, that was a lot of money, right? That was probably several hours of backbreaking labor to buy a book or whatever. And I don't even know how she found out that I had wanted it so bad. But then I fully remember the evening when she walked in and she had it in her hands and she gave it to me. And, and I was just so happy and I was so touched. She even made a joke, well, if you get hungry, read your book instead. So it's, it's clear that she was worried about money. Like, I understand that thought as an adult, but as a kid, I was just like, oh, don't worry, I'm going to read my book. <laughs> like, it, it didn't even dawn on me, but she would still do these things, you know, to make me happy and to make me feel loved and to, to give me, like, little, I don't know, little moments and stuff. So I was so grateful for that. And, yeah, doing the story made me realize, gosh, she really tried. You know, she was really putting her self out there and doing what she could when she could. Yeah, it, it really brought that into focus for me, for sure. I'm glad you have that memory about that book. I know you mentioned it in the podcast, and I thought 
what a wonderful memory to hold on to because that was her heart. That was her heart. Yeah. yeah. Corey, did doing that podcast reveal anything to you about your fictional writing and poetry? Did it affect that in any way? Or do you think it's going to affect it in any way? I can tell you it already has because I've written a book since then. And the story of her death went right into one of the character stories. <laughs> it was, it was, right away. It was right in there. I have a character from my Shadows in the Water series. Her name is Piper. She's a main character, but most of her storylines are side storylines. And her mother dies of an overdose and she goes through that in the book I just released. So it's like, yeah, it went right into the book. But to answer your first question as to did it make me realize things about my writing? Yes, I, I did not realize how much of myself I had put in my books until I told this story. So what I mean by that is I, I guess I thought because they were genre fiction and they were so imaginative that there was no way that my personal stuff was getting in there. And then I started rereading stuff after and I was like, oh my gosh, I am, all of this is here. Oh my goodness. So like, for example, in the Dying for a Living series, Jesse's entire backstory is my mother's story. And I still don't know how that happened because I didn't know about the sexual abuse, at least consciously. I don't know if I heard something as a child and it disappeared into the fold, then reemerged later when I was writing. But her backstory is a sexual abuse backstory and it very closely mimics my mother. She's sexually abused. She tries to kill herself. It would be hard to ignore that there was an overlap there. And I don't know how conscious that was. And then in the Shadow series, there's Louie, the main character, Louie. Her whole drive is to get revenge against the mafia family that killed her parents. I made Louie the same age I was when I had kind of my first emotional rupture from my father. And it's not hard to look at that story and be like, oh, this is Corey working through the anger and grief that she had realizing that she lost her father. Just meaning that the man that came back from prison was not the man that I had built up in my childhood. You know, like who I thought I had lost when I was a little kid. That's not who came back. And so it's clear that I was working through that in all of those books even though you know my father has not been killed by the mafia um, but you could still see maybe other people won't see it but I can see myself all over the page now in a way that I had not been able to do before and I was like wow okay well <laughs> I guess I wasn't a secret at all <laughs> maybe other people will just see good stories which is great and it's exactly what they should see but for me, it's really clear now that I've taken a good hard look at, at myself. I, yeah, I can't see around it anymore. I feel glad for you that you did do the podcast because it helped you see things you didn't see before, but it helped you get some things out there that may have been buried for a long time. And I, I always yes. feel that anytime you can at least get things out and into the light, into the fresh air usually is a positive thing. And um, your wellness, your health, your frame of mind, your relationships with positive people and encouraging people, just like the people in college who supported and gave you guidance, it's also important to plug into those people and situations that encourage and build you up uh, so that when... Yeah. When life throws you some tough situations, you're healthy to withstand it and bounce back. Yes. And you know, when she, one of the things that I really struggled with after she died was I had a lot of feeling of guilt about why me, like, why was I okay? And why was she not okay? Like, I eventually got better, but she never got better. And oh. why, like, why? And it was really like eating me up. Finally, my, I have a I did different therapist now. And she was basically like, Corey, we just don't know. Like, we don't know what, why some people are more resilient than others. We don't have those answers. But I actually think I kind of had that answer. And I think it's because I had her and I had other adults that did, even though maybe they themselves were not fully healed, integrated people, but they were also weren't actively tearing me down then what I experienced, which was like, yes, there were a ton of hardships, but there was someone that was invested in me, someone who was like, I love you and you're great. And I think you're, you know, even just one person telling you that you, you know, aren't fundamentally wrong <laughs> was existing. You know, I think that that helps a lot. It didn't save me from everything, obviously, right? I still had stuff to work through, but 
it probably was more than she had. And that might've been what made all the difference. I think you're right in saying that. How did your mom's life impact the person you are today? Her life. How did my relationship with my mother impact my life? Well, I think there are positives and negatives, obviously, probably for most relationships, if we're being honest with ourselves. I'll start with the negative so I can end on the positive. <laughs> and the negative effects were just the, the chronic instability and the kind of volatility of her personality and our situation left me with a lot of things to unlearn. I had to unlearn a lot of things. And to be honest, it wasn't just her, right? My father was also heaping tons onto the pile. Things that are not conducive to a healthy, happy life. Patterns like expecting the worst to happen. So for example, I recently identified that if anything questionable is on the horizon, I will immediately imagine that the, here's the bad part about imagination, right? I immediately imagine the worst possible thing that could ever happen in that circumstance. I understand why I do it, right? I do it as a self-protection mechanism because if I can imagine the absolute worst terrible thing, you know, like someone shows up and murders my whole family, then whatever does happen can't be as bad. Yeah. yeah so it's, I get what it is. I, I get what it is and why I do it. So having to unlearn those things, she gave me a lot of things that I needed to unlearn. But what she also did was she made me feel inherently good. Like nothing that I did, I could never do anything so bad that I would not be lovable. And I don't know if that's just because her own self-worth was so low that like literally I seemed like the most amazing, perfect child, which I know I was not. Like I was also hurting and going through things, but she just, anytime anything would come up, she was just like, what are you talking about? Like, you're perfect. I love you. Like, you're amazing. Like she was just very affirming in her words. And she always made me feel very supported, always made me feel very capable you know, she just had complete, absolute faith in my abilities. And she would, she had no problem pointing at herself and being like, look what I did to you. Like, you are fine. <laughs> and she wasn't doing it in a way like victimizing herself and being like, oh, I'm so bad. And like, she didn't make it about her. She absolutely stayed on task, making it about me and just very encouraging, very loving. She was a very loving person, very funny person. I definitely get my sense of humor, my dark humor from her and my interest in weird stuff. She loved to watch Twilight Zone and like she was really into horror movies. Like she, she loved that stuff and she had a great sense of humor. She also was just very good at seeing me as a person and making sure that I saw good things about myself too. She was very good at that. So I did, I got positive and negative things from my relationship with her. And more importantly, I got a really deep, yeah, this really is probably the most important thing is I got a deep sense of compassion for her and other people. So my mother you could look at her one way as someone who had addiction problems and she caused me pain and a lot of people pain and she had severe mental illness and she died of an overdose. You could paint that story or you could paint the story of this woman who terrible things happened to her, but she still loved her daughter so much and she tried so hard. You could see both sides of the story and just because you made mistakes doesn't mean you don't deserve compassion and security I'm like, I'm like what are the good words <laughs> like but you know just because you don't deserve good things like you absolutely deserve good things even if you've made mistakes and loving her has really taught me that for sure wow you answered that beautifully I love the way that you speak about her when I asked that question that's a tough question how did how did somebody's life impact yours it's it's not something that's right at the tip of your tongue but I know in the podcast I think you had a recital or a, a play you were putting on and yeah. she's just kissing your face and sending you off and you're going to do really well. And obviously things happened, but that yeah, was didn't, her. Show up, yeah. <laughs> didn't show up, but that was because of other things that she right. was dealing with that many of us, at least we couldn't even imagine that was her heart. The real person was sending you off and telling you how wonderful you are. And Corey, I often ask people about ancestors and who's in their family tree and uh, who came over on the Mayflower or, you know, who had a, a criminal boxer for an ancestor like I did. But I'm going to ask you this question. If someone a hundred years from now were to write a book about you, your life and your legacy, what would you want it to say? Wow. Okay. A hundred years from now, 
So I'm assuming I'm dead. <laughs> Maybe I'll live to be 137 and I'll write my own as I'm out going out the door. <laughs> Hold on, wait a minute. I got an idea for one of your books. Could they just keep your head alive in a box? Yeah, well, they do that in like Futurama, right? Have you seen that cartoon? Yeah, I'll just be a head in a jar. Okay. What would I like? Well, of course, the normal things that most people want as far as achievements. I hope that I was a really great friend to the earth, that I made a lot of people care about the planet, about taking care of themselves and... I hope that my writing did well and, you know, things like that. I, I hope basic achievement stuff. But more importantly, I would love it if I was viewed as this source of an origination point of deep healing for not just myself and like my own family history, but for a lot of people. Like it would be really amazing if I could, by example, give people the courage to look at their own their own past or their own difficulties and then from that just transform it into love and kindness for themselves and maybe for what they've been through and you know it's really terribly vulnerable you know to feel for people for example loving my mom and not being able to help her like that was a really difficult position to occupy I saw my mother suffering and I couldn't help her and the reaction could have been closed down my heart completely right like this is too painful but I'm still actively every day choosing a different path for myself, which is opening more, feeling more compassion, more comfort with uncertainty, more comfort with the darker aspects of myself and other people, more comfort with just how long it takes to heal yourself and how messy that journey can be. And you know, you meet those people who, when you're around them, you just feel so relaxed because they are just so comfortable with who they are. You feel totally at ease with yourself because of how they are. And I would love it if a hundred years from now, that's what someone was saying about me, that I was able to give that to other people, this, this deep sense of well-being and possibility and open heartedness. That would be amazing. That would be so amazing to me. I think you're well on your way to building that legacy. You really are. Corey, this has been just an amazing interview. I just thank you for really opening up your heart and telling your story. You know, I really wish you such success in your writing and your podcast. Are you planning on continuing the podcast that you started about your mom's death? So I did leave it open-ended in the sense I wrote it as season one. And I hope it's not like one of those where it's like you fall in love with a show and then you think there's going to be multiple seasons, but there's just one season. <laughs> you know, I'm not trying to make it like that. So there was a resolution. You know, I, I told our story to the end and where we are, but I did leave it open that should something else happen in the future, would there ever be a trial, et cetera, I would be able to come back to it. Unfortunately, I don't think that there is. There just isn't enough concrete evidence. Most of it is circumstantial for, I think, for it to actually pass the court system. But I have ideas for other audio projects that I think might be really good. And I am turning the podcast into a memoir. So it will be in book form with some family photographs as well. But I don't know that necessarily who killed my mother will expand. We'll have to see how it plays out in the future. So Corey, where can people find your books and poems? How can people find you? I'm all over the place, but if you just go to www.whokilledmymother.com, there is a books tab. If you click the books tab, you'd see the fiction, poetry, and memoir. It's all got its own icons. You can also learn more about the podcast. And if you click on the fiction, it will take you to the fiction website, which tells you all about that. Or if you click on the poetry icon, it takes you to the poetry website. It tells you all about that. So whokilledmymother.com would be the place to start. Corey, thank you again. I wish you all the best with your work in the future. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So, for all of our listeners, keep discovering and telling stories that inspire you and others. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. Please subscribe, share, and check out our website at yourhistoryyourstory.com for episode notes and bonus content. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.